Curious Conversations About Sex is brought to you by Curious Creatures, who run a variety of workshops on self-development and sexuality in Australia. My name is Rog. Today, we're looking into restorative justice again. This is the second in a two-part series, and I hate to do this to you, but I need you to go back and listen to the previous episode if you haven't already. Seriously, a bunch of stuff in the following episode won't make sense, and I'm a little worried about how some things might sound out of context. Um, But it'll be worth it, because this is a really juicy topic. Uh, And as with last time, uh, we're going to be talking about sexual assault today. Uh, Again, this is not in any high level of graphic detail, and we're only talking about it because we're looking for solutions. Uh, But nevertheless, it might not be what you need to hear today, so uh, please check in with yourself around that. Uh, So, restorative justice. Uh, Today we're talking about what it's like to facilitate the process, how it compares to other models, and we're taking a bit of a deep dive into the rabbit hole of human interactions. As a facilitator, uh, is it hard to facilitate? I, I think that there's a, a, an advantage to the kind of structure that's provided by a formal conferencing script, uh, but certainly this requires uh, extensive training and basic uh, restorative facilitation, plus uh, any facilitator needs to have a strong background in uh, sexual violence and trauma-informed care uh, so that they're really understanding the dynamics. And uh, and I think maybe w- w- one of the hardest things for facilitators is the fact that they uh, become really invested in trying to help the parties involved. And they may, as facilitators, want to push for things to happen when they're not ready to happen. Uh, so just holding back and letting things hold unfold in an organic way in the um, organic timeline uh, that makes the most sense for the parties involved. For, uh, for example, on campus, um, we're very driven by the academic calendar. So people maybe want to get the case done before the end of the semester and get results. And uh, people's uh, healing journey doesn't necessarily conform to uh, you know, the length of a semester. So the way that we work in Project Restore is we have a team of three people. We have what we call our offender specialist. That's the person that works with the person who caused the harm to help prepare them for the process, support them in their accountability and um, and to maximise what the survivor might get out of the process by working with them. And we have a survivor specialist who works with a survivor who who does that preparation um, with them, figure out what they want to achieve, whether it's realistic, help them in the process to say the things that are really hard to say, and monitor monitor and um, support them when when it, when it's hard, when it's tough in the process. Advocate as required, um, and then the facilitator role, which is my role, is um, it's my job to kind of provide a fair process. Um, and to step everyone through the steps of the process and make sure everyone adheres to the ground rules. So we all have a different, slightly different role. We all help the conversation happen. We all ask questions and challenge um, distortions and things that might occur in the process. 
and we all are working together as a team towards getting the best outcome for everybody. So, um, yeah, it's a team approach. We make all the decisions about next steps and whether it's appropriate to proceed together. Um, we have clinical supervision that helps us that we make all our decisions in a kind of a case review process so that we have someone from the outside also looking in. Um, and that's especially helpful when we have we disagree with each other, you know, um, to help us make a, a decision that from someone who's not involved in the in the work but sort of looking out from the outside in. So, yeah, that works really well and it's really well held and it means that we can um, actually do very deep work um, because we have the skills of, um, to do that work. So the therapists that are those two specialists have all got experience working for harmful sexual behaviour um, and lots of experience. So they're, um, they're able to work with the, the participants and hold them in a, uh, a, in a safe way that, that if they didn't have that experience, they wouldn't be able to do. So the facilitator's role is actually the easier of the roles in some ways. Being an advocate sometimes might be a more challenging role. Yeah, yeah. How does it feel for you at the start of a, a, of a session when you sit down? How, like how does that feel or what thoughts go through your head? There's always a little bit of anxiety about the unknowns and, you know, if you have got someone, an offender that isn't able to articulate um their thoughts and feelings, um, it's going to be hard to draw that information out. We've got a particularly vulnerable survivor. I might be um, anxious about that. I might be anxious about the support people um, and whether they're um, appropriate. So there's always a level of anxiety. Um, but um, I always come through the process with a real sense of satisfaction and um it's such an amazing experience to be with people at, at a really painful moment and to see that healing and recovery happen um, just by sharing the hurt that they're experiencing directly with the person who's harmed them, which is incredibly powerful. Um, so I always feel um, a huge amount of compassion for everyone in the space and um, privileged, I guess, to be there alongside them. Would you say that's why you're involved, because of that sense you often get at the end of a session? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Mm. You've, you mentioned going right back to how you were describing uh, stage one of the process of sort of assessment and intake and preparing people. Um, can you say a little about who you think restorative justice might be for and who it might generally not be for? Well, it's certainly not for people who feel um, pressured or coerced into participating in the process. Uh, and so one of the, the first uh, assessment steps is really to evaluate that. And that, that pressure can come from many sources. Again, I think of it in terms of a campus perspective. So we certainly don't want the university administrators pressuring people in a way that um, for the administration, it's a way to sweep the issue under the rug or uh, bury a case uh, uh, that might go public or that there might be litigation about uh, around. Um, so really making sure that people are entering into the process in a voluntary way, that's primary. And then in terms of um, offenders, it's really an assessment of their capacity 
to engage in the dialogue in a um, in a meaningful way, uh, and so engage in the process restoratively, uh, not adversarially, and um, and the uh, willingness to take responsibility, I think, is uh, is central to it. So, a case often people say, well, this would be appropriate for minor harms, but not major harms. And I don't think that's the right frame. Uh, I think it's more about um, the the willingness and ability of the parties to engage uh, meaningfully in the process. So if if there's denial of responsibility, this is not, not the right process. Of course, uh, we would also be concerned about mental health. Uh, and so people are really not able to clearly advocate for themselves uh, that because of the, um, you know, maybe a, a mental health crisis that they're in, this would not be an appropriate process. So I think those are the major uh, considerations uh, as we move through a pre-conference phase. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, is the basic structure of the model you follow where you have a facilitator and a the person that's been harmed uh, and an advocate for them and the person that has done harm and an advocate for them, so five people present in the session? Uh, we actually uh, espouse a co-facilitation model. Uh, so we have two facilitators. Uh, there's, I think there's debate within the RJ field about that, but uh, particularly around issues where there um, um, where there are some demographic considerations, in this case probably gender, uh, so that you have most likely a, a female survivor and a male perpetrator, you would want to have a, a facilitation team that matches that. And that's really about building trust and rapport uh, with the parties because the idea is... Uh, to create the enough trust that people can be honest in the dialogue. And so if they trust the facilitators, uh, they're more willing to engage um, authentically. So we, uh, so we use a co-facilitation model. Uh, we have, as you said, uh, the parties and then advocates for the parties. We use uh, the term support people. Uh, and so rather than thinking of them as advocates trying to uh, maybe defend uh, or get a result for um, like a like a lawyer might um, the support people when we talk to them we say your role in this is to help uh, this person maybe your friend or family member um, get the most out of this process uh, that that they can get so that it's a meaningful opportunity for them to address the concerns that they have. Uh, and so reframing it in that way, I think often helps the support people to become uh, really uh, contributors to the transformative dimensions of the process. Again, in campus cases, what we've discovered is that they're the individuals involved in the harmful incident and then there's everybody else because there's the friends, uh, the um, uh, the social media fallout. Uh, these cases often take lives 
on lives of their own that extend far beyond the individual incident. And a lot of people have strong feelings around these issues. Uh, and so it's quite triggering. I, I'll give you an example. Um, there was a student at a, a another U.S. campus who was assaulted by another student, and that student was expelled. So they went through a traditional hearing process, a traditional kind of punitive framework, and the student was expelled. The survivor was an athlete on a, a team. I don't remember what kind of team. Let's say soccer team. Um, and uh, uh, she, one of the other athletes on the team, one of her teammates, was best friends with the guy who was expelled. And her understanding of that incident came from him. And so from her perspective, the survivor was just the person who got her best friend expelled from campus. So she was angry at the survivor and she would do all kinds of rotten things in a mean girl sort of way uh, to isolate the, um, the survivor on the team. Uh, and uh, so some of it was kind of building a, a bullying coalition of the other team players against her. And some of it was, uh, you know, kind of like petty stuff. Like she would wear a sweatshirt that was owned by the, uh, by the offender. Uh, so she, she would do these things, uh, you know, so that it would be tr tremendously triggering to the survivor who was on the verge of not only dropping out of the, um, off the athletic team, but out of school because that athletic team was kind of her social lifeline to her academic experience. Uh, so she was tremendously isolated. And so, um, my colleagues did a restorative process that was really between the two girls uh, on the team. And when the girl heard the story as told by the survivor, she was able to understand uh, what she had been doing, uh, her own harmful behavior and take responsibility for that. She was tremendously remorseful and then became an ally and not an adversary to the teammate. Uh, and, uh, you know, and that, that just changed the dynamics uh, tremendously uh, for, um, you know, for the survivor involved. So when we think about a restorative process, when you asked originally who's involved, uh, are, is it just these uh, key five or six individuals? Often we're doing work that is involving more and more people uh, in these kind of circles of harm uh, that come from the kind of collateral damage associated with these events. Your story is amazing. And it reminds me of, uh, if I could put my cards on the table, of why I'm interested in this topic, and particularly as it relates to the sex-positive communities I move in. I have witnessed uh, over the last uh, sort of eight or ten years about four instances of sexual assault or sexual misconduct and the way that those experiences rip through entire communities of people uh, way beyond the two people that are just involved uh, suddenly you have a process of alliances and sides being formed and the 
inevitable legal process uh, starts to become weaponized uh, by both sides for or against. And I've seen those sexual assault situations rip apart community groups um, who have then become somewhat dysfunctional and unable to continue. And everyone is desperately scrabbling around for some kind of a, I feel, for some kind of a way to uh, move forwards or create um, genuine resolution uh, or, you know, dare I say, peace. Um, but those options just aren't out there. And it seems to me that restorative justice sometimes goes some of the way towards being able to provide some of that. Would you agree? Well, I, I think there's, uh, there's a lot to be gained by starting from this fundamental premise of what's the harm and what are the needs? And then you start following the harm. And it goes, as you were describing, it goes in all of these different directions, fractured communities. Uh, we've, we've been also doing work um, with faculty. It's almost starting to sound like a truth, justice, and reconciliation process uh, like we saw in South Africa after reunification. It, in, in some ways, yes. I think what was notable and profound about those uh, TRC processes is that those were about public accounting. People were creating, people were offered the opportunity uh, to speak to their experiences of harm or their experiences of causing harm. But what I think what is an important additional element here is the problem-solving dimension that we uh, we spend a lot of time trying to carefully identify the nuances of the harm. Is it financial harm? Is it emotional harm? Is it some kind of structural harm that prevents people from ac accessing resources that they need to access? Is it a function of policies that need to change? Um, how can people uh, reorganize themselves in ways that not only address the harms that they've experienced, but also change the culture of their community to prevent this from happening again? So there's a, um, the exploration of harm, but there's also a strong problem-solving, future-oriented dimension that's um, energizing for people, uh, helps them feel like they've participated in something uh, significantly helpful. Hey there, listener. I'd like to make you a little proposal. I love making this podcast for free because it helps me spread the word about sex positivity. But I could use your help in spreading the word just by sharing this episode if that's not too absurd. For every 10 stories that you listen to, please recommend it to someone that might like it too. <laughs> this is not a real contract, for you got no say. I would if I could frame it some other way. And if sharing's not for you, that's fine. There's nothing to do. Please listen without guilt to this podcast I built. I'm, I'm reminded also of uh, another, or if not criticism, something that can be hard, I think, for people to understand from the outside, and that is that um, restorative justice seems to be creating a situation where a survivor has to 
meet and be present with their abuser and engage and relate with that person and perhaps even empathise with them. Uh, and uh, obviously the survivor doesn't owe the perpetrator anything. Um, do you have any thoughts on that criticism or that misunderstanding? Well, uh, I think the, the the most common frame for restorative justice is a victim-offender dialogue, and that is certainly a practice. Uh, but I think we should not think of that as the only practice or the goal. Uh, and so if we really step back and say restorative justice is about identifying and addressing harm, there are many ways to go about that. Um, in another case, I know about the student who uh, survivor um, d- didn't want the other student to be suspended. They didn't want to go to the police. They wanted that student primarily to understand the impact that they had had on this uh, survivor who had held this quite privately. She had written quite a bit about her own trauma, but she hadn't shared it with anyone. And then when she finally did come forward into this and ask for a restorative process, the thing she wanted more than anything else, it was for the offender to read what she had written and get a response. And so that was this, that was the, in, in her mind, that was the restorative process is I'm, I'm going to share this with you. And then I'm going to get a, a written response to it. And I'm, um, that that will meet my needs. As it happens, he he was profoundly remorseful, and his writing was encouraging enough to her that she then said, as a second step, now I want to talk to you. Uh, so maybe it wouldn't have. Maybe she would have been satisfied with just the exchange of writing, and that would have been enough. Maybe it's not an exchange of writing. Maybe it's um, some kind of shuttle facilitation between where the facilitators go back and forth and get questions answered. We, we really don't know because it, we only know what people need by uh, asking them and they find out what their needs are at, in the journey. And as one needs, one need gets met, uh, they might discover they have other needs or wishes. So it's, it may be not a face-to-face process. I think I hear what you're saying is that, uh, true, uh, the person that's been harmed doesn't owe the person that's done the harm anything. Nevertheless, there is potentially something that the person that's been harmed can gain or benefit from the process. I, there's uh, you know, a lot to be gained on both sides, uh, a lot of potential gain. Um, often, you know, on the survivor side, there can be some pretty specific questions that they want answered that don't have have to do with evidence that would be used in a in a hearing process and so wouldn't be necessarily collected through an investigation uh, and it can be as simple as you know hey when i when i pushed your hand away and then you moved your hand back onto me like, wh- why did you do that? Like, I don't understand because I thought I was being pretty clear uh, with my body language about what I didn't want in that moment. Like, do you remember that moment? And can you tell me about that moment in particular? And uh, and they really want to know, you know, they want to know what the other person was thinking. And if they can, uh, I'm back to the conditions for honest conversation. If they can get an honest answer to that, 
uh, that can be very helpful. So that's on the on the survivor side, and I think for uh, um, uh, on the side of offenders, people who've caused harm, they often don't realize the impact of their behavior. They're so caught up in what their own needs and wishes are uh, that they um, that they dismiss or discount uh, what the other person is um, telling them in in one way or another. Uh, and it's a, a, a shocking, powerful surprise to hear it straight, the impact of their behavior. In some ways, it's, um, you know, that, that can generate a lot of shame for doing something that maybe they don't see themselves as um, capable of. But in other ways, it actually can be, I've heard this before, kind of empowering, like, I didn't think I was enough of a person in this world to have an impact on anybody else. And I realize I actually do have some agency in the world and maybe I can put it to better use than uh, this kind of behavior. Wow. So what I think I'm hearing you say is that perpetrators uh, develop more of an awareness or relationship to their power and with that comes their authority. And I can't help hearing uh, the mantra that rape is about power, or at least partially about power. Yeah, that, um, you know, I guess we would often think of that as a desperate expression of power, right? Someone who feels so powerless in the world generally that they're um, using their power in this kind of uh, terrible uh, destructive way, um, in order to feel they have some in some way. And so if it's possible for them to feel like they can use their, the, the, the agency that they have, uh, in a positive way, and we can channel that that's, that's obviously the goal. Wow. Um, very interesting and very touching. And I, I want to, uh, uh, because we're talking about some pretty intense, um, material here. I just want to also give us the caveat reminder that uh, we might just be talking about some situations with some people, and that all circumstances are very different. Uh, I'm, I'm just I'm just freeing us from the sense that where I, <laughs> when I'm talking about things like this, I always worry that I talk as if I'm making too general or sweeping a statement. So um, yeah, yeah, and I agree with you. Uh, I think that the restorative journey is is something that anybody could consider, uh, but it, they could also quickly dismiss it, right? That it wouldn't be appropriate uh, in every circumstance. Uh, I do think, it, you know, an exp- I mean, it's healthy for everyone to clearly identify what their needs are. And, um, and often we mistake our fundamental needs with particular strategies, like I need to get this person imprisoned. I need to get this person expelled, uh, fired. That's not, that's not a need. That's a strategy. And then to ask, what is it that you would get if that strategy were fulfilled? If this person were uh, expelled, what need would be met for you? And then we have a deeper conversation, right? Maybe it's safety. Maybe it's vindication. Um, uh, maybe it's acknowledgement. And so you can then ask, um, are there other ways to get those needs met? How can we support you in getting those needs met in the best way possible? Mm, yes, yes. Um, 
I want to ask you about a further nuance of the conversation we were talking about before. We spoke about perpetrators coming through a restorative justice system often develop more of an understanding of the power they have and the power they have misused. Uh, do you think also one of the things that perpetrators realise is how much impact the event has had on them and how much guilt and shame they have and how much they have a need to deal with that or discharge that? or face their, face their demons? You know, I, I, again, there's going to be a range of people and a range of capacity uh, for self-exploration. Uh, I, I have certainly encountered um, uh, people who've been accused of causing harm to uh to have pretty profound reflective moments like wake up calls. And maybe it's about their drinking, for example. I mean, so many of these incidents happen uh, when people are terribly drunk and, um, uh, you know, and reckless. And they, you know, and they'll often say like, it's not how, I can't deny that happened. Uh, and in fact, I don't remember it uh, because I was so blackout drunk. Uh, but if I am that person, that's not who I want to be. Uh, and I have a very different self-conception. And so I have to do some serious uh, rethinking of uh, how I behave in the world, you know, and maybe that's specifically around the drinking and maybe it's about, you know, really facing their understanding about their relationship with, um, you know, with women if it's a guy or uh, the kinds of relationships that they want to be in. It's a reckoning. Why are you involved? Uh, why is this something that you've committed to? I just see the level of need uh, and the level of failure of uh, traditional mechanisms to uh, deal with this problem. So it's promising. If there's something better uh, then I would be all ears and I would move to that. But so far, this is the method that I see as the most promising to address this issue. Um, at this time, globally, uh, there seems to be widespread recognition of the scale of harm that people experience and, uh, and the desire for real change. Do you get many moments of hope? Uh, do you get many moments of feeling that proper holistic justice is being served? I do. I, I get many moments. Yes, that's a good way of phrasing it. I have many moments of uh, disappointment and discouragement as uh, as the systems uh, seem to, um, the traditional systems uh, are, seem to be vastly capable of uh, reproducing themselves and resisting change. Uh, but um, I, I've noticed a real shift. Uh, even the language that comes from the victim advocate community uh, has shifted and I think become more nuanced, less adversarial, um, more long-term in its um, aspirations in terms of uh, uh, lasting change and not just uh, uh uh, parroting the criminal justice um, false promises that if we just uh, punish this person, exile this person, everything will be better. Uh, and what 
a good restorative justice process does is address the needs of the individuals in the moment, but also speak to the larger cultural issues that make these, um, these issues so pervasive. So we're simultaneously saying, what do you need right now? And uh, what do we need to do as a community to prevent this from happening again? Uh, how can this be an educational moment for our community as a whole? Do you have any advice for someone from either side of the fence uh, that might be considering restorative justice? Um, advice. I think that it's very important that whoever provides the process knows what they're doing in the area of sexual violence. What I see happening um, is that restorative justice providers um, then seek to apply restorative justice to sexual violence. And actually it needs to work the other way, that people with experience in sexual violence need to work with restorative justice providers to, prov to create a safe process. Um, and so it's very important about who you go to um, and making sure that you've got good support. So even if your restorative justice provider doesn't have experience in sexual violence that you bring your support like your therapist or whatever it is that you're working with um, so that they can help you make sure that that process is safe for you. I guess uh, just lastly is there anything else you'd like to say about anything we've discussed? I um, No other than just appreciation for having me on your show asking uh, all the right hard questions, uh, creating an opportunity for people to learn more about this uh, issue. And I, in turn, am really deeply appreciative of uh, you uh, having the commitment you have and doing the work you do in the world. I can see what you're wanting to get out of it and the change you're wanting to impact and how much you feel that. So um, I just thank you so much for uh, championing this very important cause. Yeah, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. I've been listening to your podcast and um, what I've been really impressed about is the, um, the notion of, of working with consent and ensuring you have consent um, and the talking about what you want, what you don't want, what works for you, what doesn't work for you, the noticing about where the other person is at um, and um, so not just relying on what they say, but also um, looking at the congruence between what they say and their body language. Because I think, I mean, I think and when you're talking about what could be considered risky sexual behaviours, um, to see that that's being um, thought about and considered and, and utilised is really um, great to hear. But to, to, if you could then sort of think about applying that to what people would consider less risky sexual practices, but which cause an enormous amount of harm, nevertheless, you know, in terms of consent, that whole thing around consent. If we could have that same dialogue and that same um, consideration and the same thoughtfulness about what people did, well, we wouldn't have sexual violence anymore, I don't think. Oh, wow. Thank you. That's really touching. I hadn't thought about it this way, but just in the moment, uh, I feel like if I was doing my job properly and as widely as I wish I would be doing it, uh, you would have much less work to do. <laughs> uh, I don't know whether to be happy or sad in this moment. 
I would, if there was no work for me to do in this space, I would be very happy. And likewise, thank you for what you're doing there in terms of I feel like you're working in a lot of at the very difficult end of the scale, um, but it's just such crucially important work. And in terms of breaking uh, cycles of sexual violence and breaking patterns of bad behavior between people, I, I feel like, uh, as best I understand it, restorative justice seems to be um, one of the most hopeful things that I see on the horizon at the moment, if not the most hopeful. It's definitely rewarding for that reason, um, because I do believe that the healing and recovery for everybody is greater as a result of participating, and um, and and I do believe that motivation for change is higher. Um, either motivation to um, take care of yourself and protect yourself, and equally as motivation not to harm somebody else again when you actually understand the impacts of what you've done so yeah I think it has huge potential to repair and prevent and we've been listening to David Karp from Skidmore University in the United States of America and Fiona Landon with Project Restore in New Zealand Uh, A huge thanks to both of these folks, uh, and you can find links to them in the show notes. If you're having the feels after this episode, by which I mean, if this has brought up thoughts or feelings you need help with, then think about the self-care you might need. Uh, Some of us have friends we call on, some of us use counsellors, and at the end of the day, you can always do a search on telephone support services near you. If you're wanting to find a restorative justice practitioner for yourself, uh, I'm afraid I don't have any central point I can refer you to. Uh, Most Western countries have got practitioners, but not all places have got a central registry. Uh, Have a search for what's near you, uh, and take Fiona's advice around putting the emphasis on restorative justice practitioners that specialise in sexual assault. That's been Restorative Justice. Thank you for listening. Can you think of anyone else that might like this episode? Please share it with them. So that's it for today. Unless you happen to be in Brisbane or Sydney in Australia, in which case we've got great news. We are coming to visit. Uh, We're going to be running our four most popular workshops. That's Fun Little Sex Games, The Forest, Kink 101, and our social event, and uh, we'll be in Brisbane on the weekend of July the 20th, and in Sydney on the weekend of July the 27th. Uh, Tickets are already selling reasonably quickly, uh, so jump on our website for all the details. That's www.curiouscreatures.biz. We hope to see you soon. Bye.